All right, welcome. Welcome those that are here live. Welcome to our live stream folks. Nadine, welcome. Page 193 in Master Plan for Life, and this is lesson number 20 of 28. So we are getting there after tonight, eight more weeks. Next Sunday, or excuse me, next Wednesday, we do not meet. So it's spring break, spring break for all the schools in Wayne County. And so we always take that uh, Wednesday off, anticipating the number of people to be out of town. So uh, two weeks, we will pick back up with uh, lesson number 21. But I want to remind you where lesson number 20 fits in. Again, you see up at the top of page 193, it says objectives of the church. So this entire section all the way to the end now of Master Plan for Life is all about the doctrine of the church, but different uh, aspects of the doctrine of the church. This one says objectives of the church. What we just finished with lesson 19, 17, 18, and 19, all three of those lessons, if you looked at the upper right-hand corner, it says the purpose of the church. That's all about the purpose. But now we're transitioning to a different section on the church, which is the objectives. And it's important to understand how these next several lessons are, are structured because otherwise it'll look just like a hodgepodge of lessons on different topics related to the church. It is lessons related to the doctrine of the church, but it's not a hodgepodge. They actually are connected in a logical fashion. So here's the way these uh, objectives are connected. There are three objectives. Welcome, sir. Page 193. Yep, 193. Three objectives that Christ has given to the church. Uh, the first one is uh, evangelism, and the second one is edification, and the third one is expansion. This is all in the Great Commission itself. Evangelism, then building people up in the faith, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you, Jesus said, and then uh, it is to go to all nations. That's the expansion part. So evangelism, edification, and expansion. Those are the three objectives. That's why the top of the right-hand corner says objectives of the church. Tonight and next week, or in two weeks, we're going to consider the first of those three objectives, evangelism. And then uh, in three weeks from tonight, we'll start with the second of the objectives, edification and then expansion. Each of those sections, evangelism, edification, evangelism, has at least two lessons related to it. So this one on evangelism, this section on evangelism, has two, tonight and in two weeks. The reason I'm saying two weeks, Brad, next week we don't meet, it's spring break. So then we'll be done with evangelism, then we'll go to edification. There are three lessons related to how the church edifies, builds up, and then there are two lessons on expansion. So that's a total of seven lessons, and that means there are only two more left, and those two are the church and the future. And we'll have a lesson on the church and the tribulation, uh, and the rapture of the church, and then the, the kingdom. The last one will be on the kingdom, okay? So three objectives, evangelism, edification, and expansion. A few lessons under each of those. Tonight, we start with the first of those, evangelism, and we have two lessons related to that. Top of page 193, then, one of the objectives of the church is evangelism. It takes place on two levels, personal and witness and corporate mission. This lesson deals with personal witness. Then in two weeks, we'll deal with corporate mission. By personal witness, what we mean is uh, evangelism, uh, and it's the endeavor to obtain professions of faith attested by the commitment of baptism and service in the local church. Now notice those two words, attested by. So our objective in evangelism is not simply to obtain professions of faith, but rather we want to then see those people discipled. And, and so that means we want to then uh, move them into the first steps of growing in the Lord, and that includes baptism and beginning to see their gifts and abilities used in service in, in the church. A lot of times uh, evangelism and evangelism courses and evangelism training is about securing professions of faith, getting somebody to say, I believe in Jesus. Now, obviously, that's where it starts, and so we, we want that for sure. But if you just leave it at that, then you don't have the person taking the next steps. 
You don't have the person then growing in the Lord. And unfortunately, too many evangelistic approaches and too many churches win their evangelistic ministries leave it at, at that. But Jesus didn't say to uh, secure professions. He said to make disciples. And in order to make disciples, yes, you have to secure professions, but you don't leave it there. You baptize them and you teach them to obey. So that's what, why we say attested by. In this lesson, we're going to examine then personal witness or evangelism, the role of the local church in it, the method, the message, and the results. First of all, the role of the local church in personal witness. Many parachurch groups, you guys have heard me use that term a few times in uh, our time together in Master Plan for Life, but you see in parentheses there it says these are organizations that undertake ministry without any accountability to local churches. So parachurch means beside, para, beside the church, beside the local church. It's not the church, it's a ministry. Uh, many of these do good things, and, so, uh, and sometimes very good things, but they are not the institution through which God is carrying out His work in His world. The local church is. Uh, and really the New Testament knows nothing of parachurch, parachurch groups, but we've had all kinds of them spring up uh, over the decades in particular in America, uh, and people just start their own ministries. They're not related to a local church. They're not accountable to a local church. They're not necessarily trying to get people into a local church. They just kind of do their, do their own thing. Many parachurch groups view evangelism as a personal responsibility that has no necessarily link to the local church. The Bible, however, demonstrates the fact that ministry is to be tied to the local church because the local church is... A, B, and C on the next two pages. It's the source, the means, and the target of personal witness. First of all, middle of page 193, the local church is the source of personal witness in that it's been given the authority to witness. And we say that because the Great Commission that Jesus gave just before He ascended back to the Father, when He gave the Great Commission, He said in Luke chapter 24, Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And then he says, though, but stay in the city, he says to the apostles, stay in the city until you receive power to begin this mission. And the city, of course, is Jerusalem, and so they wait in an upper room in Jerusalem, and when you start the book of Acts in your Bible, that's where they are. They have been instructed by Jesus to wait. Uh, they've been waiting, if you do the math for all the little clues that Luke gives us, they've been waiting about a week, and uh, they're in this upper room, and the Holy Spirit does come upon them, Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost. And the day of Pentecost is the day that both the church started and the Great Commission started. They started on the same day, at the same time, and they move forward in tandem together. You don't have uh, the... Uh, you don't have a church, you shouldn't have a church that's not doing the mission, and you shouldn't have a mission that's not centered on the church. And that's why we say here then, the local church has been given the authority to witness. In order to see that, you have to connect what Jesus gave in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, in Luke chapter 24, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, with what happened on the day of Pentecost. I've explained a bit of that in the past. We're going through the uh, book of Acts on Sunday mornings in our worship hour, so I'm not going to bore you guys with that again. But it is that connection with the day of Pentecost and the beginning of the church and the beginning of the Great Commission at the same time from which we get this idea the church is what has been given the authority to witness. And secondly, the church provides the personnel to do the witnessing. In the Bible, the source of godly individuals who have been prepared for evangelism is the local church. As a result, those who make professions of faith are to be funneled into the local church where they're also discipled to become witnesses. So where do these people learn to become witnesses for Jesus? It's supposed to be through the, through the church. So the church has been authorized to carry this out on Christ's behalf, and then it is through the ministry of the church that people are trained to do it, like you guys are being trained right now. The reason we have a lesson like this to tell you what personal witness is and what evangelism is and uh, our responsibility in it is so that we, the church, can fulfill our role in providing the personnel to be Christ's witnesses. So the local church is the source 
of evangelism, personal witness. Secondly, bottom of page 193, it is the means of personal witness. An individual is best able to accomplish the ministry of personal witness when prepared and supported by his involvement in the local church. And you see four things on page 194 that the local church provides. Specialized training. Witnessing is life ministry. The message of the gospel is supported by the transformed life of the messenger. It's the task of the local church to help bring about this transformation in the lives of God's people. This is the ministry of edification. We'll be looking at that. That's Remember I gave you three objectives, evangelism, edification, expansion. We'll start looking at that objective in Lesson 22. Therefore, witnesses are prepared for their task in part through the educational ministry of the local, of the local church. Now, let me just stop there for a minute. So that first sentence under point one says, witnessing is life ministry. The message of the gospel is supported by the transformed life of the messenger. So what happens if you have somebody who's out witnessing in the name of Christ without that transformed life? It becomes a real mess, doesn't it? And I don't know if you guys have seen it, but I've seen it. And I've seen it many, many times. Uh, one, of the, one of the times where it really came crashing home for me was when I was doing my computer work years ago, and I uh, got a new position in Ann, a software company in Ann Arbor. There were only four people in my little group uh, there, and we had kind of a bullpen of four desks, and it was just this square and a desk in one corner in each of the corners. Uh, and so you could hear each other if we were on the phone and, you know, that kind of stuff. So I'd only been there under a week, and I heard one of the guys talking on the phone, and he was saying, yeah, brother, I'll pray for you, and, you know, that kind of thing. He's using Christian, Christian lingo. And this guy, this guy apparently is a, is a Christian. Well, then another week or so into it, I learned that everybody in the department hated this guy. I say everybody. There's only a couple guys in our department, but everybody in the company, <laughs> out, even outside our department. Nobody liked this guy. And once we started having department meetings, it was clear that everybody didn't like this, like this guy. And I'm thinking, oh, that's perfect. This guy's been working here. He claims to be a Christian, but his testimony is, is no good with, with everybody. And then he found out that I was going to seminary at the time. And, uh, and so I'm a Christian. And so he comes sidles up to me and starts the hey, brother, and all that. Now, what do I do with that? I mean, what do, you, what do you do when you want to have credibility in your testimony because it is life ministry and it's supported by the transformed life of the messenger, but now I'm going to be associated with this guy who's already messed up his testimony. I don't want my testimony to be messed up. And so I had to, I had to tell him and did tell him, hey, we're not on the same page. We're not doing the same thing here. Um, it's clear to me that you've messed up your testimony here. I mean, I had to be, I, you know, I didn't enjoy that, but I had to be straight with him because I did not want people to think, oh no, here's another guy like that guy, because it would have it would have harmed my my testimony. And you see this kind of thing happen too often, where somebody does not have that trans transformed life. They're not held accountable within the confines of the ministry of the of the church, and they're just out there hurting the cause of Christ in the name of Christ. And that's what number two is. The local church maintains personal accountability. Personal witness is a matter of communicating the truth of the Word of God with our words and our deeds. The local church has been given a system of discipline to maintain purity in both these areas so that personal witness will accurately communicate the message of Christ Jesus. Now, none of us in leadership in the local church are omniscient, obviously, so we don't know what everybody's doing in their private lives and how they might be messing things up. And you know, I'm not interested in trying to track that down and be the CIA <laughs> for God. But God has a way of, of revealing these things when he, when, he, when he wants to. And when they are revealed, when they are made known, when we know that people are not living a consistent lifestyle, uh, when they are not representing Christ accurately, then that has to be confronted. Yes, lovingly confronted, but confronted none, nonetheless. And if the person will not repent of what it is they are doing, then that needs to be dealt with in terms of, you see the verses there, 2 Thessalonians 3, Matthew chapter 18, 1 Corinthians 5. These are all about the process of church, church discipline. 
On a more positive note, the local church provides an environment of encouragement. Hebrews 10.24 tells us that really one of the main reasons that we meet together regularly is for encouragement. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And then lastly, the local church provides strength through intercession, that is, praying for one another. And that's what Paul asked for in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 with regard to his evangelistic ministry. Brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you, and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. So the local church is the source of personal witness, it's the means of personal witness, and then it is the target of personal witness. Witness that seeks only to secure professions of faith is not the biblical concept of evangelism. As I mentioned earlier, the Great Commission envisioned evangelism producing converts who are baptized and then channeled into the teaching ministry of the local church. So here's an example of something that did you know, good things, a parachurch ministry that did good things for a lot of decades, but just didn't, just didn't get this. Uh, and a lot of people have emulated the same thing, but the late Billy Graham. Uh, a lot of, lot of really good things to say about Billy Graham. You know, not least that you maintain a ministry for like 70 years and you do it pretty much scandal-free. I mean, that's really, that's really hard to come by. You know, in our day and age, you see all these religious leaders that get caught in all these things. And, and he maintained a system whereby when he was on the road, he had accountability with uh, other of his entourage to make sure when he was in a hotel room, he was never alone. Uh, you know, he was certainly never alone with a woman on the road or any of those kinds of things. And that served him and them, his team, very, very well over the years. He also had financial accountability. He was one of the first to start an organization so that it wasn't just one guy collecting all this money that was coming in and doing with what nobody, nobody knew behind closed doors, uh, but rather the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association then was a corporation to, to handle that and have some accountability. So good, for, good on him for all of that. And not least that he's preaching the gospel. <laughs> so when I met, level this criticism, it's in light of all of those, those positive comments. But I don't know if you guys have heard of this, maybe some of you have, but when Billy Graham would have his, his crusades, uh, he would uh, either not channel people back into a church at all, or if he did channel those people who made professions of faith into a church, it was whatever churches supported the, the crusade in that, in that particular city, including, for example, Roman Catholic churches. So you would have Roman Catholic priests uh, on, the, on the platform. You would have Roman Catholic churches when he would come into Detroit or someplace else uh, supporting the crusade. And then when people came forth, one of the things that the workers were told to do, trained to do, was to ask, do you have a church? And if they said, I'm a member at you know, St. Anne's Catholic Church, good, go there. And they would just send them back to their, their Catholic church. That's, I hope, obviously not the way to, to do this. So it, it is a matter of trying to channel people into a Bible-believing and uh, Bible-honoring honoring church. All right, so there is the role of the local church in witness. It is the source, the means, and the end or the target of personal witness. And then now the method. The method, it is primarily relational. It's accomplished from a life context. When a person, what a person says must be supported, supported by what a person is, or put another way, a person must be a witness before they can do witnessing. Peter stressed this important concept in his instructions to Christian women who are married to unbelieving men. Look at the top of page 195. Peter said, wives, Submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So that doesn't just apply to wives. That principle that your life needs to precede your words applies to all of us. But here it's being used in the context of the home and uh, having an unbelieving unbelieving husband. So just like I said about the workplace or any place we go, within our, our families, within our sphere of friends, 
you know, how we live should be consistent with what it is we want to say to people. And we'll talk about what we want to say to them in a moment. So it's accomplished from that life context. And it treats people as people. It's relational. And so people are watching you. Your life context matters. And it treats people with respect. Um, and the respect they deserve as image bearers. Now, why is that important to say? Look at the paragraph there. Many method-oriented evangelistic programs depersonalize those to whom the gospel is given. Now, do you guys have any idea what we're talking about there when we say that? There are training methods for giving the gospel that make it kind of a rapid-fire sales pitch. And the idea is for you to get the intro to the sales pitch and get to the end of the sales pitch. And there's not any consideration given to the person you're talking to in between. You just want to get them from here to there. Okay? And so you just treat every person the same, kind of like you're trying to go through this uh, assembly line of uh, evangelism. There are lots of training uh, uh, materials and approaches that do that kind of thing. Those are not the best approaches to, to witnessing because it is relational. It is done in a life context. And then people understand, you know, they, they get when they're just a, a scalp on your belt, <laughs> when you're just trying to get another number, another one that you can add to your tally of someone who was one to, one to Christ. I was taught these kinds of methods, uh, you know, what to say to somebody to arrest their attention and then having gotten their attention then to go through a gospel presentation as quickly as possible and then get the person to agree with you and then to uh, say that they receive, receive Christ. Sometimes you wouldn't even have them pray to receive Christ. You do the praying for them. <laughs> and so it, it just kind of maybe hold their hand and say, let's pray. Uh, th this is a method. Hold their hand, you pray, and then you tell them, squeeze my hand if you agree with what I prayed. <laughs> okay. So this is just this quick kind of go-through-it, depersonalized, methodological approach. But we must recognize that those who are lost are more than trophies. They're created in the image of God, and they should be treated with appropriate respect. This will mean the evangelist will seek to establish genuine relationships with the lost and then witness from that context. That was frequently the evangelistic method of Christ and of the Apostle Paul. One test of whether or not you are treating people as people in your desire to reach them with the gospel, and we should all desire to reach our friends and family with the gospel. Friends, okay, that's why we're going through this. So don't exempt yourself from this. God has put you in a circle of people, and He wants you to live Christ in front of them, and He wants you, as we're going to see, to speak Christ in front of them too, all right? But having done that, let's say you do that. And then the person says, nah, you know, it's not for me. You get your friends with that person. You enjoy your coworker with that person, whatever. You go to lunch with them every now and then. You get a chance to give them the gospel. You do that and they say, no. One test of whether or not you're treating them just as a target, just as a trophy is, do they remain your friend? You see, they're still worthy of being your friend. Even after they've not accepted your invitation to, to follow Christ. But what a lot of people would do is say, okay, move on to the next one. Well, if I do that, then it's pretty clear I was only using this relationship, right? But the truth is the relationship is valuable in itself. Now, it's not eternally valuable in that if they never come to Christ, then they're not going to be in heaven. And so we want to see that change. But it's valuable. It's valuable for you. It's valuable for you to rub off on them because they are, made in the, they are made in the image of God. And so you should treat them that way, not discard them uh, simply because they reject. And by the way, because they reject the first time doesn't mean they'll reject the second time that God opens the door down the road too. So personal witness is primarily relational. And B, it's message-centered. Though relationships with unbelievers are necessary, and I've emphasized that now several times, those relationships alone do not constitute evangelism. The unbeliever must be confronted with a message, must be spoken the message of the gospel, uh, have it spoken to them. So if you are somebody who says, you know, I don't like to, I don't like to, I don't want to be a Bible thumper, I don't want to impose myself on people, 
All in all, that's a good sentiment. I understand that completely. Uh, but you can't be an effective witness if you don't actually at some point speak. You actually have to use the name Jesus. You have, actually have to speak Christ. You actually have to tell them what the gospel is. So you don't just live it and they come to Jesus. Nobody comes to Jesus just because you're a good guy or good gal in front of them. That gives you credibility to speak, but you've got to speak. And it is message-centered then. So that means proper personal witness values content more than technique. In 1 Corinthians 2 there, Paul really makes a point of saying, in my preaching, uh, my preaching and my method were not centered on me. They were not centered on my uh, ability to speak, to persuade people, but rather it was the content of the gospel and then the power of the gospel to affect change in people. So it values content more than technique. Now remember I said a lot of these training sessions for evangelism teach you this kind of salesy, just like you're selling shoes or something, get them from here to there. Let me give you an example of how that happened in my life. When Kim and I were first dating, we weren't even married yet, the first Baptist church that I was ever a part of as a young adult, remember I was Pentecostal, so I'm in this Baptist church, and I was there for a total of about four years, didn't have a whole lot of discernment, so I didn't really know uh, what, all of what was wrong with this particular Baptist church. Kim had to show it to me when we started dating, and she did. Uh, but one of the things that they did was they would have every Thursday night, you were supposed to come out for door-to-door evangelism. So this is a place that had Sunday morning service, Sunday night service, Wednesday night service, and then Thursday night, go out and, and knock on doors. So you'd meet at the church at 6 o'clock or whatever time it was, dinner hour for everybody. <laughs> and then you would be assigned different streets to go to, and you would go down those streets, and you'd knock on the door, and you had your pitch to make to the people that, that came to the door. And the people in that church were taught to give that pitch to everybody they came across. If you had three minutes to spend with somebody, do your thing in three minutes, five minutes. So I was, Kim and I were leading in that church a young adult uh, class, young adult class. And one of the Thursday nights that we were going door to door, we all came back to the church. And this is the other thing that would happen is everybody would come back and they would all compare numbers. You know, so I had 10 people receive Christ. If you, if every Thursday, if you counted the numbers, there were dozens of people who were coming to Christ. But our church never grew. So how are we doing the Great Commission? Where are those people going to be baptized and to be and to be channeled into the church, right? And it was very unusual that any of those people would actually show up at the church. We were just trying to secure the prayer, the, the profession. But one night we came back, and there was this, these two older guys that had gone out, and they had witnessed to some guy that they found hitchhiking. They picked this guy up. This guy's a, you know, a captive audience. They give him the, the, the gospel, and they tell us, you know, he trusted Christ right there in the car, and uh, they said he's a young guy, and here I'm doing the young adult ministry. I said, well, did you get a name from this guy? Did you get a number? They had gotten a name and a phone number. I got it. I reached out to him, said, hey, I'm the young adult guy at the church, and we have an event coming up on Friday. And he says, you know, I don't have a car. That's why I was hitchhiking. I said, it's okay. My fiance and I will pick you up. So we did. And he, and he came. So he gets in our car. And I'm going, man, this is great that you've come to the Lord, that you trusted Christ. And he goes, yeah, you know what? I wanted to talk to you about that. <laughs> I go, okay. He says, uh, you know, I really don't know who Jesus is. In fact, how do I know that Jesus even existed? That's what this guy says to me. Now, mind you, a few days ago, I got guys in my church telling me that this guy came to Christ. This guy, they didn't give this guy enough content about the gospel and about Jesus for him to even know anything about whether he existed or, or what he did or any of that. They just put him through the motions, right? So it's content more than technique. And you have a lot of people, and there are people still out there doing this, giving Christ a bad name, uh, who are placing technique over content. Number two, 
Proper personal witness avoids methods that detract from the message. Methods that depend on appeals made exclusively to the emotions and high-pressure sales techniques can cause a person to make a hollow commitment. True saving faith can only come as a result of actually understanding the message of the gospel. Notice, anyone engaged in personal witness should evaluate his method by asking a couple of questions. Was enough truth taught to make an appeal for response meaningful? And secondly, was the conscience probed regarding sin? Those are two ways for you to gauge whether or not you've given enough content for the person to make a meaningful response. If they don't have uh, enough truth in order to respond to the truth about God and about themselves and about sin, well, then you can't, you can't really call them to, to trust Christ. They don't know what they're trusting Christ for. Again, here's another example. Again, I'm working in my computer uh, job. I was sent to Houston for a week for some training. And on Wednesday, when I'm in Houston, I go down to the concierge in the, uh, the hotel, and I say, hey, where are the churches around here? <laughs> Little did I know, man, when you go into the Bible Belt, yikes. Have you ever seen some of these churches in the Bible Belt, in Houston of all places? So this, this uh, guy tells me, hey, there's a church just a few blocks from here, Second Baptist Church, Second Baptist Church. So I go to Second Baptist Church. I have never seen anything so mammoth in all my life. On a Wednesday night, we're pulling into the, the parking lot, and there are guys out there with a reflector vest like you're at Cedar Point, and they're directing the traffic on Wednesday night, okay? And so I just follow the crowd. I park. I just follow the hordes of people into this mammoth building that is you know, a city block you know, large and go into this, you know, this big area. And this wasn't even their main auditorium, but... It was, it was huge. And people are in there shoulder to shoulder. I got people right next to me on this thing. All right, so what's going to happen? There, were a, there was a group of young people, about five young people, who led this thing. And it was a music and comedy skit night. That's what they were doing. And they were hilarious, by the way. <laughs> they, were, they were actually quite good. But I'm still, wow, okay. It's the Wednesday night service. Uh, this is what they're doing. And then they had an elderly lady in the, in the church who they had scheduled to come and give her testimony. So this was the closest to like gospel content you get. The elderly lady was a stand-up comedian herself. She was a hoot, absolute hoot. But there was nothing in terms of truth and sin and all of that given. So she's just talking about her history with the church and how much she loves it and all of that. And she's talking about the pastor and she's making some jokes about him. And again, she was funny and they were all funny and entertaining. Okay. Then they give an invitation. And the group, the five, they say, will you bow your heads, close your eyes? So now we're all there. We're, and one of the guys starts praying, praying that people will come to Jesus. And the gal next to me is sobbing uncontrollably. And I'm thinking, what was she touched by? <laughs> I don't know. I literally do not know. There was nothing given here. But they're making an appeal for people to trust Christ based on no content, based on this skit and kind of comedy show. They sang a song with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, and then this got more people crying. So this is the you know, emotional appeals and sales techniques. They sang this song. And uh, I guess it was a popular song at the time. I didn't in, in Christian circles. But it had a line, something like, you're supposed to be singing to God, and it says, there's no one like you, like you, God. No one else can make me feel like you do, God. I could search through all eternity and find there's no one else like you. That was the line. All right. It's like you singing to God. Sounds like you singing to your girlfriend or something, but nonetheless, <laughs> it's you singing to God. But then the guy leading the singing says, did you know that God can say that about you? And so then they sing it again, but this time it's God singing to you. There's no one like you. No one else can touch my heart, make me feel like you do. I, could, I God, could search through all eternity and find. There's no one else like you. 
That would be what's called blasphemy. That there's no one else like us for God. So that's what passes. Second Baptist Church, by the way, is one of the largest churches in America. Have you ever heard of a guy named Ed Young Jr.? Ed, just Google Ed Young Jr. He now has about, I don't know, 10 campuses or something. They fly him from one, a hel by helicopter from one to the other on Sundays. I'm not making this up. So his dad, Ed Young Sr., was the pastor at the time I was there. Now it's junior, and it's gotten even bigger. And this is the kind of nonsense that passes for church and evangelism. Okay. Number three, bottom of page 195. Proper personal witness involves a fixed message, but a changing method. Our method changes based upon the culture in which we minister. There's no God-ordained method of personal witness, but all our methods have to be consistent with the character of, of God. So they all have to be consistent with the character of God. So you don't want to do anything that demeans the character of God. Uh, and so, you know, Paul in the New Testament, he says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. He says, I urge you. And he says in Romans chapter 10 that he would be willing to give his own life. He says this, I would be willing to give my own life if my countrymen, my fellow Jews, would, would turn to the Messiah, would turn to Christ. So he's expressing real emotion there about his desire to see people come to the Lord. But beyond those kinds of references, you do not see people begging on behalf of God. And I personally think it's beneath the dignity of God. What we need to do is tell people lovingly and make a, a real, genuine appeal, of course, to them to trust God. Trust Christ as Savior. Uh, make sure they know who this God is, the one who made them and the one who condescended to come to earth on their behalf and do for them what they could not do for themselves. All of that. But I'm not going to beg people to do that. Not that I'm above it. It's just it's beneath the dignity of, dignity of God. God deserves your allegiance. He made you. And so this is, this is your reasonable response to this. I'm simply telling you what you, what you should do. And so, whatever we do, bottom of page 195, it should be in keeping with the character of God. That's one example of that. I think the begging approach doesn't meet that standard. Here's another one where the holiness of God, if you're not careful, can be compromised. Um, you guys have heard of Campus Crusade for Christ? Have you ever heard of that? That's one of those parachurch groups that does a lot of good work and primarily evangelistic work on campuses. It's no longer called Campus Crusade. It's now just called Crew, C-R-U. They changed their name to Crew. But that's what they do, campus ministry for young people. I don't know if they still do this, but for many years they used to have this spring break evangelism uh, thing they did. So, you know, spring break, right? So they would go to the beaches at spring break. Okay, right? Okay? You see where we're going here. And then they would have they would have like set up a booth and they called it the burn center and they would have you know suntan lotion and stuff like that okay you see where we're going with this right and you're going to have these young people you know giving and sometimes administering suntan lotion to other young people on the beach during spring break and then witness for jesus in that in that context probably not the best the best context for the character of god to be set forth but that's the kind of thing that was done. And a lot of times people think, look, anything that will get people to give you a hearing and trust Christ, then God's going to be pleased with that. And I would just say to you, that's not true. You know, God's not, here's what we got to remember. God is not that desperate. Did you know that? <laughs> As a matter of fact, He's not desperate at all. God's just fine. He was just fine before He ever created us. He'll be just fine if folks don't trust Him. He wants that. He offers that. But God's going to be fine either way. So we need to lose the idea that we got to go to bat for God and we got to help God out somehow. All right, top of page 196. So what is that message of personal witness? Since content takes precedence over method, then the message has to be clearly understood by the one engaged in witnessing. So that would be you and me. So let's make sure we understand it then. The focus of personal witness, uh, first of all, 
the focus uh, has to be a God-centered rather than man-centered. So number one, proper personal witness is not man-centered. The tendency of modern evangelistic techniques is to make the gospel appealing in order to entice a decision. In the process, the message is often corrupted. The following are common emphases of a man-centered message. Man-centered witness presents God primarily as a loving friend. It minimizes His authority. Now, notice that we've got the word primarily emphasized there in italics. We're not saying He's not a loving friend. We're not saying He's not. We're just saying that's not where it starts. You know, where does the Bible start? In the beginning, God created. So what's the first thing that people are confronted with in the Bible about who God is? He's your creator. He, he makes the rules. He made you. So you don't start with, he's a loving friend. So Campus Crusade for Christ. They developed a thing called the four spiritual laws. You guys, maybe you've heard of that. And that's their evangelistic technique, these four spiritual laws. The very first of the four spiritual laws is this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's the first law. Now, who's that starting with? I mean, it uses the word God, but who is it really centered on? You and the wonderful life, right? And so it's to entice that decision. And one inappropriate way to do it, one man-centered way to do it, is make God primarily a friend, minimizing His authority. Be there. Man-centered witness views the lost from the standpoint of their needs. Love, help, friendship, and so on. It minimizes our sinfulness. People are considered deprived rather than depraved. And so you'll hear this a lot. Hey, everybody just wants somebody to love them. And so I want you to know that Jesus loves you. Well, is that mankind's problem according to the Bible? That we just want somebody to love us? I mean, did Adam and Eve have somebody who loved them? in the garden when they rebelled against Him? Yeah, clearly. Gave them everything. But they rebelled anyway. And, uh, and so it's not just we're looking for love and we just can't find it, and now finally we find it in Jesus. But rather, we have this built-in natural rebellion in our sinfulness. That's what depravity is that we saw back in Lesson 9, I believe it was. Um, on depravity. It's not that we're missing something, we're deprived, rather we are positively sinful, depraved. Thirdly, see there, man-centered witness views Christ primarily as the Savior. This minimizes lordship. He's presented as existing for our benefit. Now again, He is the Savior, clearly, but He's not primarily the Savior, He's primarily the Lord, the Creator. And this Lord, this Creator, what's amazing about the fact that of His grace is that He came to save us. But it's only amazing if you understand who He is first, that He's the Creator and He's the Lord. And then fourthly, D, man-centered witness stresses the idea that people accept God and then God dutifully responds. It minimizes God's grace and God's sovereignty. So I try to avoid that accept Christ as your personal Savior language. It's not, it's not horrible. Uh, and so if you use that language, and a lot of us have had that for a lot of years, and sometimes it's hard to break you know, the habits that you've heard. So I'm not going to you know, smack you if I hear you say it or something like that. But I try to use language more like that we bow our, our, our hearts and our lives before Him. We give our surrender ourselves to Him. So it's not that, you know, Jesus is, you know, knocking and Jesus is trying to get in and you finally say, all right, Jesus, you know, come on in. I'll accept you. Um, but rather, you surrender your rebellion to Him and you bow your life before Him. So proper personal witness is not man-centered. Rather, number two, it's God-centered. In contrast to the characteristics of a man-centered approach, the following are emphases of a God-centered witness. God-centered witness shows that God is primarily the Creator and Sovereign Lord. And you see that. Here's the Apostle Paul standing up in Athens, Greece. He's amongst these Athenian uh, philosophers. And how does he start? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He doesn't know. Look at what he says. God, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth 
And he does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Do you see how the tables are turned? God is here and we are here. And you need him desperately because he made you. He's the one who gives you your very breath. He doesn't need anything from you. He's not served by human hands. He doesn't live in these idolatrous temples that you guys have set up all over the place. And so it sets in order that it's God before us. Top of page 197, God-centered witness presents mankind as sinful. Again, Acts chapter 17, to those Athenian philosophers, in the past God overlooked such ignorance. Now He commands all people everywhere to repent. He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. So if we are going to witness accurately for the Lord, we have to tell people, listen, you are a sinner like I am in rebellion against God. And that requires an eternal price, an infinite price to be paid. And you are either going to pay that in hell, in judgment, or you're going to receive the payment made for you by Christ on the cross. So sin has to be clearly laid out. Thirdly, God-centered witness emphasizes the work of Christ, the life, death, and lordship of Christ. And Peter did that on, in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. You see it listed there from Acts chapter 2. And then fourthly, God-centered witness shows belief slash repentance as a loving command to be obeyed. Now you see that their belief, that is faith, belief and faith, same word in your New Testament. And those responses to the gospel, believing, placing your faith in, and repenting, we've seen what repentance is in previous lessons, a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. That's the proper response. But here's the key. That's why we have it underlined. It's a, it's a loving command to be obeyed. You see, the Bible presents God as the one in the driver's seat all the time. And so He's not begging for you to accept. He's actually kindly commanding you. <laughs> this is what you've got to do. You must believe. You must be born again. You must repent. Now again, you can say that kindly, you can say that lovingly, that's what we should do, but it's a command to be obeyed from a position of authority that God possesses. So the content then of, of personal witness. You have the focus of personal witness, it's on God rather than on man, and so now let's look at the, the actual content itself. Points of emphasis in the content of our gospel presentation. Key elements of the gospel are often de-emphasized or omitted in order to make it more palatable. Note the following facts that are commonly omitted. The fact of God's complete holiness. You guys have heard of a Willow Creek Community Church. You've heard me beat on it a few times. Uh, Bill Hybels was the guy who started that. And um, there's a book called Willow Creek Seeker Services. That's the name of it. Excellent book written by a guy who spent a full year at Willow Creek while that guy was doing his doctoral dissertation at Northwestern University in sociology, and he chose to do it on the phenomenon of Willow Creek, his doctoral dissertation. So he told Willow Creek, this is what I'm doing, and they gave him permission to have access to the staff, have access to their files, all kinds of stuff for a year. And then he wrote this book. And the guy was not a preacher. He was not, I don't even know if he was a Christian, actually, that wrote it. Uh, so he did, wasn't a guy going in with an axe to grind. You know, he wasn't trying to expose Willow Creek. He was just trying to see what it was. So he spends this year there, and he saw that it was marketing. They, they use that term, so he wasn't imposing that. They say, we're marketing this and this is how we do our marketing and so he started to see how the marketing approach affected their evangelism how they talked to people about God and he went back a whole year and he counted how many times the word love was used of God and how many times the word holy was used because think about it, if you're doing marketing which one's going to sell better right God loves you how, how, how much of a seller is God's holy and you're not, <laughs> right? That's not a big seller. 
So, and I don't remember the, the exact number of love, but it was dozens and dozens in, throughout the year. Three times the word holy was used. Three in Bill Hybel's sermons. Because he carefully crafted his message to appeal to what people wanted to hear. And you have churches all over the country that, have do, that do the Willow Creek thing. And, they, and the preachers craft their words the word holiness is used about a thousand, holiness and sin are used about a thousand times in the Bible. How could you go a whole year and use holiness three times? You can't be looking at the Bible, can you, when you do that? Certainly not the Bible in a balanced and holistic way. So sinfulness is often left out as well, as you might imagine. The fact that salvation is fully based upon God's grace, that is, often we're... The evangelist, the preacher, puts you in the driver's seat rather than God in the driver's seat. But rather, if you're going to really honor God, you need to put God in authority. And if it's not for the grace of God, you're hopeless. So it's not you telling God, okay, this is what I want you to do for me, God. Yes, I'll accept. No, it's God extending His grace to you and really emphasizing the fact that without God's grace, we're all hopeless. The fact that repentance involves the rejection of and turning from, from sin, and the fact that the object of saving faith is Christ Jesus, who is both Savior and Lord, and that it will produce a changed life, all of that. Most of those right there, guys, just don't, aren't going to make it in the marketing survey. They're just not. And that's why they're missing from the gospel message of many market-driven churches. So with all of that, here's a suggested structure for presenting the, the gospel. And we've covered a lot here tonight, so this final section is, it looks like a lot, it goes in through page 198, but it's not as much as it seems like, and here's why. Take a look at the bottom of page 197, you see point A there, the character of God? Then if you'll turn to the next page, point B, the character of mankind, C is the person and work of Christ, and then D is the response. So even though this is over a a full page of information, it's really those four things. And many good and Bible-centered and Bible-honoring gospel approaches take that fourfold approach to the content of the gospel, that you need to remember to teach people something about God, something about us, <laughs> something then about Christ, and something about the response. God, man, Christ, response. Those four things. So if you could just, those are those four, if you could come away from this lesson remembering those four things, God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. Now, with that, let's look quickly at each of those. God, man, Christ, response. Bottom of page 197, what about God? He's the creator, and we're responsible to him. He's sovereign. He can do anything He wants. He's holy, and so He will not overlook sin. He's gracious and He's loving. He's provided a means for mankind to be forgiven. All right? So that's what you want to present about God. Start with God. But then what about humanity? Now notice, we don't start with sin. We start with the fact that we were made and created to reflect God. We were made in the image of God. So it's okay and it's accurate to tell people, Hey, listen, this God who is all of that and is the Creator created you, and He created you as special among all of His creatures, the only creature among all of His creation that's made in His image, made to reflect Him back to Him. But the problem is we've given this special position, but we have misused it. We've rejected God, and so we've marred the image through rebellion, and all people continue to reject God by our sin. No matter what sin, how much sin, we've all rejected God according to the Bible. Secondly, mankind is incapable of doing anything to please God. Anything less than perfection, in fact, is unacceptable to God. Now see, that's already been laid out because you said He's a holy God and He can't overlook sin. So that means you've got to be perfect. Okay, we're in a world of hurt here. And then we stand condemned before God. And that has consequences not only for now, time, but also for eternity. Well, that's who God is. That's who we are. That's our predicament. Now Christ enters the equation. Christ is God. Come as man. He's the God-man. 
Because He is God, He is perfect. He has the perfection that we don't and that we need. Because He's man, He can actually save, rescue mankind. He lived the perfect life, satisfied God's demands, died in your place. That's what the substitutionary part is. He was punished for our sin, and He rose from the dead. He's the Lord of the universe, and He can grant you forgiveness. So you've covered God, you've covered man, you've covered Christ. And then what do I do with that? You give people that information, that content, and then tell them what they need to do. Acknowledge the fact that you're sinful. Repent. Change your mind about your sin and your direction and go God's way instead of your own way. Believe what Christ did, that He bore the penalty for your sin, and then submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So if you'll just do that, guys, and if, you know, maybe sometime just rehearse that, you know, on pages 198 primarily, but God, man, Christ, response. You then will have a full and God-honoring gospel presentation. Now, what are the results of doing that? Last page, page 199. The results of our evangelism, the results of you faithfully doing this with people in your circle of influence, what are they going to be? Well, I don't know. Because God's responsible for that. You know, I can't guarantee and you can't guarantee that this person that you love and you're praying for, you know, we we hope and pray and we want to live faithfully in front of them and give them the message, but you can't control that. Only God can, can control the results of our witness. And Paul says that, 1 Corinthians 3, you see it there? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Notice this. I, Paul, planted, Apollos watered, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. It's only God who can bring fruit out of this labor that you do in bringing the gospel to people. God's responsible for the results. Often the abuses of method-centered evangelism are due to a misunderstanding of who's responsible for the results. See, if you think you're responsible for the results, you'll feel the pressure to make it happen, to close the sale. But you don't have to close the sale. You know, God's got to move upon the heart of that person for them to willingly then come, come to Him. So God's responsible for the results. And when those results happen, they can be recognized. So it is not the case, as many people do. You know, have you guys ever seen this where you've got someone, I've seen it a lot in ministry, where you've got someone and they have not sought to live for Christ in any way at all for their whole life. Now, I know they haven't lived a perfect life because I haven't and you haven't, of course, far from it. But I mean they haven't sought at all to follow Christ. They haven't looked for a church where they can learn and grow in Him. They haven't uh, changed from what they were to becoming more like Christ over time. None of that's happening. But there are people out there who, if you ask them, are you a Christian, they'll say yes. And they'll say, you have a time where you came to Christ, where you were converted? And they'll say, yeah. I received, I accepted Jesus as my Savior. When? Well, I was hitchhiking and some guys picked me up. <laughs> no, really. Or some people came to my door. Or I, so I prayed a prayer when I was six or when I was 16. Well, was there any change in your life? No. If there's no change in the life, as we've already seen back under the doctrine of salvation, then that person has no right of assurance to say that I'm a a child of God because the results of personal witness, when God gives them, can be recognized in an initial response and then continuing evidence. The initial response is they profess faith in Christ, but they're willing to follow Him in in baptism. If somebody says, I believe in Jesus, but they're not willing to be baptized, that makes suspect completely their profession of faith. To publicly say, I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. They get involved in their local church. And then there's continuing evidence, as we saw from the book of 1 John, that they believe proper doctrine, they pursue a righteous lifestyle, they have love for other Christians. All right, that is personal witness. Now, in two weeks, we will look at 
corporate witness, lesson number 21. So do the homework for lesson number 21. Corporate witness, that sounds like very business-like corporate. All we mean is church, congregational, as opposed to individual personal witness. This is now what we do collectively together as the church to advance God's mission in His world. That's what we'll look at in Lesson 21, okay? All right. Thanks, guys. With 30 seconds.